0: Let's turn in our Bibles, going to Romans chapter 10, Uh Romans chapter 10 and verse 11. Says, for the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon his name. Now let's do our usual and back up a minute and just get a little bit of review of kind of where we're at in Romans here. Um, Paul's clearly d- displayed the gospel to us in, in Romans. He's clearly displayed the fact that none of us can earn our way to heaven. None of us can earn righteousness. None of us can earn justification before God that it must be given and it's a grace gift. And how is it given? And then he's also shown us that God sovereignly bestows these gifts, His gift of grace. He sovereignly bestows it on whom he wills. It says he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. Remember that from Romans 9. And he gave us the, the, the picture of Moses and Pharaoh in that. Um, which, which is answering from Romans 9 to Romans 11. That's the portion we're in right now. It's answering the question is, what about the Jewish person who was, was, were the covenant people of God, but now they're not in covenant with God? And he's displayed that the, the Jews broke covenant with God. They sought after righteousness by trying to attain righteousness by, through the law which is impossible, instead of seeking righteousness that comes from God through faith. And that's kind of the portion we're at right now, and I don't know if you remember, but this, this, this portion we're in right now is, is talking about more of preaching. And he says, remember he says, for the word of faith which is in your mouth and in your hearts. You're, you're already preaching it, you're already believing it, so therefore keep doing it. And then we come to this little portion right here. And this is kind of in between him speaking about preaching and then right afterwards he starts speaking about preaching again. So this is kind of in between right here. But he says, well let me me give our our three points. And I didn't mean to do this, but I saw it after I did it. The first point is believing ones. The second point is one blood. And the third point is God's riches. So If you took the first letter of all those it it makes bog like chicken bog which made me hungry when i when i thought about it (laughs) Uh, but anyway so it's believing ones is our first point so let me start this by correcting a misconception by many on this verse and another popular verse that sounds somewhat like this that many quote as well it says whoever believes in him or Whosoever believes in him, right? No, that's not what it says. It says, it it's, does say that in the English here, but the words in the Greek are, and you might have heard this before, this argument before, but it's pas ha pastuon. It's those three words, pas ha pastuon. And it's the exact same phrase that's used in John 3.16. This is where you may have heard it before. When John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him, the same, the same exact phrase is there, pas ha pastuon. It's the exact same language in Greek. Now, now let me tell you what this isn't first. This isn't an indiscriminate call as though they weren't elect. I know people love to go to John 3.16 as though it proves wrong the doctrines of grace, Right? You start talking about election and they say, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes. As though that makes divine election wrong. Not only does it not make election wrong, because we know that the whosoever there will be elect. But the word whosoever isn't there in either. It's the word pas. What we, what we would see is P-A-S which means everyone or all things or everything or some of all types and actually the ESV translate this word as everyone in our text in Romans 10 but this also does not mean everyone indiscriminately either it doesn't mean just every single person in the whole world because it's limited by what follows pistouam which is believing so it's everyone believing That's what it says. And that's what it should say in John 3 16. Everyone who is believing. Now let me mention this too as well. This believing is a present active verb. So, which means that they are currently actively believing. Not that they believed in the past, but that they are currently believing. So to translate it better, as some literal translations actually have it, which I like, is everyone who is believing on him or in him. Everyone who is believing on him. Not whosoever believes, but everyone who is believing in him. We could say the believing ones. Not just indiscriminately whosoever believes, but rather the ones believing in him. It says, what does it, what it say about them? It says that in the NASB, it says they, they, won't, they won't be disappointed. Everyone believing in him, they won't be disappointed. Now, the NASB puts it that way. The ESV says, put to shame. Everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. And the KJV says, shall not be ashamed. I think being disappointed and being ashamed are quite different. Well, this is a quotation Paul makes from the Old Testament. He's quoting Old Testament here. And he quotes from the Septuagint. He doesn't quote from the Hebrew here. He quotes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And in in the Septuagint it says that they shall not be ashamed or put to shame. The Greek means to shame down. Y'all see the picture? To shame down. To dishonor. To disgrace. So the idea here is that if you are believing, if you are believing in Christ you will not be ashamed now this idea is very big I believe let me try to touch on a couple aspects of this first aspect of this that you shall not be ashamed is the righteous are as bold as a lion now I think this applies here because Paul is clearly talking about preaching in our context here he's talking about preaching this whole area right here is about preaching He just said the word of faith which we preach, and he'll continue on about preaching after our verses here today. So I think we can rightfully say that Paul at least had in his mind that the one who is believing in the Lord Jesus will not be ashamed to take the gospel out to the world. Remember, that's even Paul's thesis statement for Romans, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And it comes from the same root word ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And now remember, Paul makes the connection between preaching and not being ashamed there too in Romans 1. Because Romans 1 15 Paul says, and I love this verse, most people don't even think about this verse. In verse 15 he says, for I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. Who is he talking to? Believers. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you believer in Rome. And so many today say the gospel is not for believers, right? We just take the gospel out to the world. It's not for us. No, it is for us. It's for us every single day. But he makes the same connection there. He says, I am ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. So the same connection. There's a preaching and not being ashamed. And we can clearly see that connection there. And I think it's the same connection he's making here in Romans 10. He's speaking about preaching. And then he says, everyone who is believing in him shall not be ashamed. You see that connection? The other thing I want to see from this is that we won't be put to shame because of our sin. Now when I say this, I don't mean that you won't feel shame when you're doing something wrong. I mean that the Lord Jesus took our shame on the cross. You don't, have to, you don't have a reason to be ashamed. Now, mind you, repentance and sh- being shamed are different. Repentance and being ashamed are different. You definitely have a reason to repent from your sins, but you need not be ashamed. Let me give you a picture of this. I think this is a picture that's, that Scripture gives us. Adam and Eve in the garden, when God created them, they were without clothes, right? And then they sinned. And what happened? Well, let me, let me stop there and back up a minute. They, they were without clothes, and they were not ashamed. That's what the text says. Genesis 2.25, it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. What does that have to do? We'll see. But what happened after the fall? They knew that they were naked, and they tried to cover themselves. Why did they try to cover themselves? Because they were ashamed now. I'm sure they knew consciously that they were naked before, but now they're ashamed of it, and they try to cover themselves with fig leaves, right? Listen to Matthew Henry on this. The text tells us that they that they saw that they were naked, that is, that they were stripped, deprived of all honors and joys of this paradise state, and exposed to all the miseries that might just be expected from an angry God. They were disarmed. Their defense had departed from them, they, that they were shamed, forever shamed before God and angels, they saw themselves disrobed of all their ornaments and in signs of honor, degraded from their dignity and disgraced in the highest degree, degree, laid open to the contempt and reproach of heaven and earth and their own consciences. So they sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. And because of their sin, they were ashamed at their very being. Now fast forward. To the second Adam. That was the first Adam. Now fast forward to the second Adam. Actually, turn here real quick with me to Matthew twenty-seven. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-five. Now this is talking about Christ here and his right as crucifixion. It says, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his, his garments among themselves, casting lots. So, so when, when, they crucif- where was it? And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. This is what John Gill says of this which we already, probably all of us in this room already know this. I just wanted to make sure that somebody else says it too. For they stripped him of his clothes before they fixed him to the cross and crucified him naked, as was the custom of the Romans. So the, the Adam was naked and sinned and therefore because of his shame needed clothes. He needed a covering. The second Adam was clothed and because of our sins was stripped naked and hung publicly on a cross. But notice the real reason I'm bringing this out. It's not about clothing or about nakedness, but it's about sin. It's because of sin. Sin made Adam ashamed and therefore needed a covering. The second Adam took sin upon himself without a covering on the cross. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And what does that mean to us? It means now, brethren, that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Need not to be ashamed of your sin. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are clothed in all that matters. The righteousness of Christ, so you need not be ashamed. He took that shame upon the cross, you believing ones. Let's move on in our text here. I'll go back there to Romans 10. You might not need to, but I'm just going to read the text again. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches, for all who call upon Him. The second point here is one blood. Now after Paul has shown us He clearly shown us this in the very beginning of chapter 10 that the Jews were seeking their own righteousness by the law and they missed the righteousness of God. He says this, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now this is a pretty, I think it's a pretty cool picture what we're going to see here. He says there's no distinction. So does this mean that they have the same culture, that there's no differences in their families or histories or anything? I, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. The distinction is not a family history, or culture, or skin color. We all have distinctions in that. He's dealing with the believing ones, remember? That's the the distinction, or lack of. Because we are believers, there is no distinction in our calling. We are one. There is not one way of salvation for the Jews and another way of salvation for the Gentiles, as some teach. There is one way, by grace, Through faith now now this word for distinction is actually pretty interesting here it means difference or distinction one of the definite definitions of this is of different sounds musical instruments make so we can make out different instruments by their sounds right if we played a song and say say the drums weren't in and then the drums come in we know oh the drums just came in when the bass is playing, you can hear the bass compared to the guitar. We have, there's a distinction there, right? We can tell the difference. What this is saying is there is no distinction in this. There's no distinction. You can't tell the difference between Jew and Greek. So it's like we all make the same sound. You can't tell the difference in Jew or Greek because they have one Lord and they all call upon Him. The believing ones, Jew or Greek, there is no distinction. And actually, this is kind of a cool picture, too. We actually still use the same Greek word today. I don't know how they... It's hard to pronounce. I think it's harder to pronounce in English than it is in in Greek. Um, Diostele is in English. It's the word that's used to speak of when the heart relaxes. And fills with blood so you know you know your heart's pumping right when it pumps it squeezes the blood out when it relaxes blood comes back into it so it relaxes all the blood comes back into it that's what the word that's what the, that's the it's called the relaxed phase of the cardiac cycle when the chambers of the heart are refilling with blood so when your heart relaxes it refills with blood that's the word so the blood comes together in the heart then what happens? The heart contracts or squeezes and then the blood separates. But it's speaking of the time before the heart contracts. So all the blood is one in the heart. Guess what? There's no distinction. All the blood is the same. It all comes to the same place. There's no distinction there. And when it con- contracts, right, it sends blood out to our hands and to our feet. We can say, I got cut. I'm bleeding out of my... This blood came out of my hand. But when it, when it relaxes, it all goes to the same spot. There's no distinction. So just as the blood in your heart in its relaxed phase is one, so are you in Christ whether Jew or Gentile. Does not matter. We're one blood. We're the same. And we were placed there by Him by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. So there's no distinction between us. We are one in Christ, no such thing as a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. We're all simply Christians. Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom we call them. Let's move on to our, our third point here. So we're one blood. We're the believing ones. We're one blood. And a third point here is God's riches. In verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. Now, if I was a prosperity preacher, this text would be one of the prime texts I'd use, right? It says abounding in riches. But I'm not a prosperity preacher and I'd be twisting God's Word. The the abounding in riches is about God. He's abounding in riches. The word means exactly what it sounds like it means, too. It means wealthy. He is wealthy. He is abounding in riches. Now, I do, do think that when we speak about God being wealthy, it's a lot different than when we speak about, like, Scrooge McDuck being wealthy. Or to the little modern mind that don't, maybe no, never even heard of Scrooge McDuck, maybe Elon Musk. Elon Musk has material wealth, right? A lot of it. However, God owns everything, even Elon Musk. But I think it's bigger than that with God as well. It's not just the things that you can touch and feel. It's not just about material wealth with God. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in grace. He is rich in love. Those things we can't touch. And here's the thing that we probably can't grasp either when we think about wealthy people, billionaires, the fact is there's still an end to their money. I mean you can you could probably easily Google rich person that's now poor and find tons of them. Many rich people have filed bankruptcy. They were rich but became poor. God can never have this happen. His bank account, if you will, is endless. It's eternal. And once again, I'm not talking about just just material things, but His divine attributes that He bestows upon us. They're eternal. Meaning that God can love me with an everlasting love and love you with the same love and a billion others at the same time. Or let me put it to you like this. You don't take attention away from God to me. He can attend to you and me at the same time, even if we're on the opposite sides of the earth. There's no end to the riches of God. Let me also mention this. This is kind of a cool thing that I would have never known by just reading the text. But the word rich here is actually an active verb, which means he's bestowing it. It's talking about what He's bestowing upon people. It's active. It's not just an indicative that God is rich. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not just saying, yep, God's rich. It's an active that He is bestowing on all who call upon Him. That's what the text says. Let's see another verse, I think, that displays this. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 16. It says, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. This word fullness here, it means completion. It comes from a word for perfection. So out of his complete, full perfection, we all received. We didn't conjure it up. We received it. And what is it that we received? It says grace upon grace this is literally grace on top of grace so like king david remember king david was a psalm 23 where he says my cup runs over my cup overflows why is his cup running over because it was full and it was still being poured into so his cup runs over. it was grace on top of grace and this is us with grace right this is what god does with us with grace he pours it over top of us, on top of us, on top of us, and doesn't stop for eternity. Every day new grace is given and given and poured out upon us, though we don't deserve a drop of it. He fills our cup and he keeps pouring. You know you've experienced this, right Christian? You know I'm not one much for trusting experience. But I know this from experience and from the text. When you think, God, you've done too much already, and He just keeps on pouring on grace. You have been there? I mean he doesn't have to save anybody and the fact that he saved me a stinking wretch that's chased after every single sin that you could think of then not only that but bless me with continued mercy love and grace not just spiritually but also physically as well every day grace on top of grace and the very fact that it's grace means that it has to be given you can't earn it you can't demand it grace cannot be demanded he gives it to whom He desires. In our, in our text, it says, He is rich to all who call upon Him. The believing ones. To quote Paul in, in Romans 8.28, y'all know it. And we know that all things work together for good, right? No, nope. But that's what gets quoted all the time, right? We know that all things work together for good. That's not what the text says. It says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are called according to His purpose. But so many people take that first part and just cut it off. We know that all things work together for good. And just like our text here in Romans ten 12 doesn't say, For the same Lord over all is rich unto all. He doesn't say that. He says, He's rich unto all that call upon Him. These riches... Are bestowed on his children and his children only the truth is for the ones that the Lord came for that's who these riches are bestowed upon that's who this grace on top of grace is poured out upon those that the Lord Jesus came for. The ones He is a substitute for. The ones He died to take away the sins of and rise from the grave for. The ones after He ascended to the throne He's making intercession for. Just as the high priest of old made intercession for the people of Israel, the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ makes intercession for His people and His people only. The high priest in the Old Testament did not pray for the Egyptians or the Philistines. They weren't His people. Jesus, in John 17, you can see it, He prays for His people and His people only. He says, I pray not for the world. That's Jesus' words, but for them, the ones that that the Father gave Him. He makes intercession for us. And here's the great thing about this, that it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Greek, tall, short, old, young, rich, poor, black, white, it does not matter. If you're one of His, if, you, if He's called you and you call upon Him, He bestows His riches upon you, grace on top of grace, forever. He is rich unto you if you call upon Him. He is all we need. We just sung that. This world can take a lot from us, right? But it cannot take Christ from us. He is rich unto you. So keep looking unto Him who is the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. Let's move into our application portion here. I call it a call to faith and repentance. As always, I address the unbeliever here. Our text says that whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed or will not be ashamed. However, if you don't know him, you will be ashamed. And if you die without him, you'll be ashamed for all of eternity your sin is your shame you violated God's moral law and you deserve his justice you deserve to be put to shame because of your sin and unbelief however you sit in the church service today whether by choice or by compulsion you sit under the ministry of God's Word which in and of itself will increase your sin if you do not repent and believe And that's what I'm pleading with you to do. The Lord Jesus already came down from heaven, sent to be born of a virgin, to keep the law and to die for sins. And Jesus didn't die for either Jew or Gentile. He died for sinners. As Paul says that um, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And Paul says in Romans 3.23, which we've already saw, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He died for sinners, then rose from the grave and was seen of over 500 people, then ascended to His Father's right hand where He sat down victorious over sin and death. So the word to you this morning, unbeliever, is to believe upon Him. Not to do good works, not to straighten yourself out, but to repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today. And now to the believers here. The believing ones. In our our text it says that the believing ones will not be ashamed. So the question is, even though Paul didn't even see this as an option, are you ashamed? Let me separate this like I did in our doctrinal portion. Are you ashamed to preach the gospel? Are you ashamed of your sin? The text says we won't be. It said, we shall not be ashamed. We will not wallow in our shame because of our sins. We will get up, repent, and keep moving forward. That's what believers do, right? If we would stay ashamed every time we sinned, we'd stay there. The idea of being shamed, ashamed, is actually being fearful. As believers... God has taken away all of our sins, right? God has taken all of our sins away. What do we have to be fearful of? God doesn't punish his people. He chastens them, right? But the writer of Hebrews tells us that's a good thing. It's a good thing that God chastens his people. You have nothing to be fearful of, to be afraid of. Now, I don't say this as though we don't fear God in a reverential sense, right? We do do that. But we aren't afraid of him like he's the boogeyman or something. He's not going to destroy his people. He is going to keep giving you grace on top of grace. And you know what grace covers? Sin. We need grace on top of grace. Why? Because we sin on top of sin. However, when we do, let's repent and get back to work for his kingdom and be not ashamed to preach the gospel. You know, when our sins make us ashamed, then we are scared or we feel unworthy to preach the gospel. How many of y'all been through that? I, I'm not worthy to preach the gospel because I, I was in sin. Let me, let me take that away from you real quick. Nobody is worthy to preach the gospel. Nobody. Nobody's lips are so clean that they should be given that holy message to speak. However, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines, right? God uses broken instruments to play a beautiful symphony, does he not? Don't wallow in your shame and sorrow. Yes, you've sinned. Repent and look to Christ and go forth. To our next, our last point here, our call to war. Take a drink. I'm going to let y'all in on a little secret. I started this call to war portion because I was watching the movie Braveheart. And when William Wallace, Mel Gibson, was about to take these peasants, he was about to take these peasants into war, he gave this mighty speech beforehand. Remember this? And as I'm watching, I'm thinking, that's what pastors should be doing on the Lord's Day. Preaching this message that to, for the people to take forth, go forth to war. We should be, we should fill God's people with God's word, then give them a call to war to take that word out. That's what we are to be doing, even if we're just peasants, right? Even if we're to fight with with spoons and forks. Go forth. that's what we're here for. You know the gospel. Everybody in here that claims to be a believer, you better know the gospel because that's how you're a believer is through the gospel. So you know the one message, the only message that you need to take out to the world, you already know it. It's already in your mouth. It's already in your heart. You're already a believing one who will not be ashamed. So be prepared to take this message out into the world. Let me bring this out too as well. Though we are called to go out into the world with this message, we are not called to go alone. Jesus said I'm with you always he goes with us so you can call upon him anywhere anytime you can call upon him we can call upon his riches that he bestowed on us to strengthen us to go forth this is part of grace on top of grace you've been saved by grace and you go forth into the world by grace and with the grace that you have been given you display to others so it's not simply about preaching Though we must do that. Just as Carol and I spoke last week, if we're just simply doing philanthropy work without the gospel, we're no different than the world. If we're simply screaming the gospel at hungry people and not feeding them, we're no different than the Pharisees. We must do both. We must show grace to people and we must give them the gospel. That's our calling. And as we're doing that, we are calling upon the name of the Lord. Not just for strength and courage, but for him to save their souls. And then we call upon him to strengthen us to disciple them. Right? That's the one part of the Great Commission people seem to cut off, right? They think Great Commission is just go out to preach to somebody. That's not the Great Commission. It's about seeing God save people, yes, but then it's about working to see that person grow in the Lord. It's about discipleship. So that brings me to my next question, and and, and I'll close. Who are you discipling? You don't have to say it out loud, just look in the mirror real quick. Who are you discipling? Discipling should always be done. It should always be being done, right? I mean, ladies, you know there's ladies that are younger in the faith. What are you teaching them? You may have children at home too. Are you teaching them the scriptures? Men, same goes for you. Who are you engaged with in life to teach them about Christ? This is something we should all be doing. Now this doesn't mean When I say discipleship, this does not mean that you have to go out to the coffee shop, take your Greek New Testament, and parse verbs with them. It means we teach them life as Christians. Which may mean teaching someone how to work a job. Which may mean just teaching somebody how to speak to other people. Those are mundane tasks, right? But they're tasks that we must do pretty much every day for the rest of our lives. It may be just teaching them just the simple things of the faith. Maybe not jumping into eschatology and election and all this other... Just teaching them what faith and repentance means, what it looks like. Teaching them about Christ. The Bible does not teach us that we must have a THD in theology before we're qualified to disciple others. So let's get to work on this. Let's take forth the gospel and teach God's people the things of life. Let's grow together and go together for the advancement of God's kingdom and the glory of His name. Amen.